This is the Monday, January 9th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. The song you're listening to is Put Me Off at Buffalo, a 1901 recording by S.H. Dudley. That's to get us all in the mood for this week's adventure. Our time machine is whisking us back to the Pan American Exposition, a Gilded Age World's Fair powered by the newly tamed power of electricity. Yes, harnessing electricity was a big deal back then. The pan covered 350 acres at the edge of Niagara Falls and harnessed its power to fire up light that you could see for miles and miles around. This heralded the wonders of the 20th century, but also featured lingering stereotypes of a pre-flight world and the tragic assassination of President McKinley, America's most beloved chief executive since Abraham Lincoln and the last Civil War veteran president. Yes, even in the grand era of world fairs, there were disaffected, unstable, radical forces who looked to spread their message through violence. The embodiment of such anger, Leon Cholgosh, stalked McKinley at the fair, intent on decapitating the government. I have to tell you that if time travel were more than a snappy metaphor for history books, I would shuffle off to Buffalo in 1901 without hesitation. But until we can step into the Wayback Machine for real, we can enjoy the next best thing with Margaret Creighton in her new book, The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City, Spectacle and Assassination at the 1901 World's Fair. You can also visit her at mcreight88, that's M-C-R-E-I-G-H-T-88, or margaretcreighton.com. Her most recent title before this one, was The Colors of Courage, Gettysburg's Forgotten History, Immigrants, Women, and African Americans in the Civil War's Defining Battle. The book was up for the Lincoln Prize, and I'm betting that this new book is going to be winning some prizes too. Margaret Creighton was raised in western New York and moved to Buffalo at age 16. In the meantime, she's earned a degree from Indiana University, a master's in journalism from Boston University, and a Ph.D. in American Studies. Today, as a professor of history at Bates College in Maine, she returns to her roots to explore what amounts to a lost city, buried under modest streets and middle-class subdivisions. Okay, now that we've paid our two bits for a ticket, let's stroll down the midway with Margaret Creighton and witness the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City. I'm joined on the line by Professor Margaret Creighton, who brings us 
the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City, spectacle and assassination at the 1901 World's Fair. Thank you so much for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. It's going to be great fun. <laughs> I'm glad you think so, because I was telling you off the air, trying not to sound full of myself, that I bet <laughs> I have spent more time thinking about, reading about, dreaming about sometimes the Pan American Exposition than anybody you will talk to for <laughs> this book. So it's really exciting for me when I saw it there. I think it was that <laughs> Buffalo News article. I just said, well, I have to somehow convince this author to come and talk <laughs> to me about it, because that's this isn't work when I do this. This is just fun. Oh, that's great. Well, it's a little, it sounds a little bit terrifying to talk to someone who <laughs> knows so much, but uh, I'll try my best. Well, I know the feeling because I'm talking to you, so it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start where it all begins. These men behind the Pan American Exposition, they had to attract visitors just as an author has to attract readers, just as a radio show has to attract listeners. So let's start by asking you to play Carnival Barker for us today. Give everybody your best pitch for the sights and sounds that they will rediscover when they read The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City. Well, I think if I were trying to get lots and lots of people to Buffalo in 1901, I would tell them, first of all, to be prepared to be dazzled. America's most sophisticated engineers have conquered nearby Niagara Falls, and they're delivering electric power to the fairgrounds. And the result is probably one of the most beautiful light shows that anybody could imagine. Hundreds of thousands of incandescent bulbs, thank you, Mr. Edison, uh, outline the edges of exposition buildings at night. And just as dusk approaches, the light bulbs grow from a pinprick of red into and expand into a sunshiny yellow and nighttime turns into daylight. So it's the biggest thrill of the fair. It was called the Illumination, and you certainly wouldn't want to miss it. And I could go on. There are gigantic exhibit halls displaying everything new and modern and the most creative things in America. And there's a big domed government exhibit that, if you like the country's new adventure in imperialism, can help convince you that the United States has done the right thing, for instance, in occupying the Philippines. There are state exhibits showing off all sorts of strange and marvelous things, like a state capital made out of butter and a fort made out of crab apples. And finally, you can get to know something about Latin America. It's the Pan-American Exposition, after all. And for the first time ever, you can see curiosities from Mexico and Argentina, meet people from Chile and Ecuador. And there are also lessons to be learned through the sculptures throughout the grounds and the colors of the buildings called the Rainbow City for the hues and tints that cover the exteriors of pavilions and big exhibit buildings. And the fair directors wanted to tell you through the colors the story of human progress, and civilization. And so when you enter the fairgrounds, uh, probably you'll enter at the southern entrance, you'll see that the buildings are painted in what fair directors called and the art director called the more primitive colors, warm oranges and reds and yellows. And then as you move north through the fairgrounds, the paint on the buildings becomes more and more muted 
more and more white until you reach what's billed as the pinnacle of civilization, the electric tower, which is painted in creams and whites and gold. So you wouldn't want to miss that particular aspect of Rainbow City. So the fair planners promise that this is going to be as big an event as Chicago's fair back in 1893. And so I'm sure you wouldn't ever want to miss it. And what's incredible to me is you grew up less than a quarter mile from the Pan American Exposition or where it was. You're not 150 years old, you're, <laughs> but you grew up so close and you have such passion in your voice now. I think that you must feel, you can't believe it, that even people who lived right on top of what was this mini city within a city had no idea of the past right under their feet. What sparked your interest in digging up this history, sometimes quite literally out there with a shovel maybe in somebody's backyard looking for pieces, is what people have to do to uncover this. Well, well, you're absolutely right. There are lots and lots of people living on the site of the exposition now who have absolutely no idea of what lies underneath their feet and what took place over 100 years ago. As you mentioned, I grew up nearby, and we hardly ever talked about the Pan American Fair. When I was in grade school and middle school in Buffalo, we studied the history of India, for example, and never took the time to go and look at the local history of Buffalo. You know, I've sort of speculated about why this is so. Why doesn't Buffalo spend more time celebrating the Pan American Exposition, talking about it, memorializing it, and so forth? And, you know, certainly part of it's because of the McKinley tragedy. It seems to have tainted the city, and maybe it's better left unremembered. And maybe it's also because the fair wasn't an economic success. But Part of it may be also the fact that many of the exhibits celebrated the triumph of white civilization, which is something which doesn't sit too well with people right now, I think. And so it's something that really has been largely dismissed or bypassed locally and nationally. But what got me going, though, was essentially the search for a good story. I was teaching a course in 19th century American history. And I had assigned Eric Larson's wonderful Devil in the White City. And the class as a whole sort of speculated about what follow-up fairs there were. And we also talked about what has happened to World's Fairs. Why don't we have as many of these events? I mean, there are some, for instance, the next one I think is in Kazakhstan. But we don't do that much in the way of expositions in the United States now. But in the back of my mind as I was teaching this class was Buffalo. And I began to think there had to be more to the story than simply, not simply, but more to the story than the death of the president. And I traveled back to Buffalo and started out at the big public library downtown and was led to a wonderful set of scrapbooks that had been compiled by, I think, a large group of women in the mid-20th century And they were all clippings from Buffalo Papers from 1901. And they were effectively a kind of mother load of information, of press clippings about all these strange and curious and true happenings that had occurred a long time ago. And that really started it off. 1901, too. It seems like such a stark demarcation point. You would think it would be 1900 or 1899, but... 
it seems like the past. It seems much farther ago with McKinley's presidency ending than it does with TR. There's kind of this big break when Roosevelt becomes president and there's more video, there's planes soon, there's going to be more cars, there's just this excitement. And I think people, it's kind of the opening band for the Rolling Stones kind of thing. I talk about <laughs> McKinley sometimes, especially if you were, you know, just kind of a staid, not a very exciting, smashing guitars kind of band. You might still be very good, but nobody's going to remember you before the Rolling Stones come right, out there, right? right? And so I think that that's part of it. And I very much absorbed those same lessons. You know, I read that a million places that, well, because of the assassination of McKinley, that the life was just sucked out and not only did it ruin the Pan American Exposition's chances, but it also ruined Buffalo. And that's why we see to this day Western New York suffering problems. This is a myth that you debunk here in the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City because you talk about the challenges it faced from the start, the problems of not being ready on time. But one thing that they do have, though, is all of these characters. And I mm. always try to avoid referring to figures from the past as characters, but <laughs> they were really colorful people there. I mean, they're real flesh and blood people, right? It's not fiction, your book. Yeah. But they almost seem like fiction. They do. I mean, yeah, the Animal King, right? right? Uh, Frank G. Bostock. <laughs> yes, a character called the Animal King. I mean, they were characters. They were extraordinarily eccentric. They were showmen, and they were you know, designed or designed themselves to attract as big an audience as they possibly could. So, yes, they are characters. One of the individuals, and you mentioned him, Frank Bostock is the animal king, and uh, he has as one of his major stars a woman, a little person who's two feet tall named Chiquita. And Frank Bostock was really an intriguing guy and ended up being, well, kind of the villain in the story. I mean, not that he's fictive at all, but because I sort of found evidence, actually had to travel to London to sort of pursue this thread, but found evidence that he really was not a very nice man. But he was the leading showman on the Midway, and he claimed to have subjugated wild animals all over the world, lions and tigers and elephants and jaguars, and he brought them to Buffalo for a big wild animal show. And he demonstrated that he had such command over lions, for instance, that he could arrange them all in a little, almost a little tea party, sitting with a, a man reading a newspaper. And he was sort of the perfect match to the cultural themes of the fair, I think, which stressed, again, the triumph of white civilization over human savagery. But Bostart not only showed animals, as I said, he showed off Chiquita, who was a Mexican, even though he billed her as a Cuban, and she entertained audiences by singing and dancing and speaking in lots of languages. And she was sort of the perfect foil, I think, to Uncle Sam, in a sense. And she was always expressing her gratitude to America, to the United States, for rescuing Cuba from the Spanish. And she was dark-skinned and tiny and vulnerable, and so again, she was sort of a perfect complement to Uncle Sam and to American foreign policy. You have pictures of her in the book, by the way. I have pictures of her in the book, which I found at a library um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I don't want to give anything away, but Chiquita tries to escape the clutches of Frank Bostock and to flee the rest of the story you'll have to discover, but she is one of the sort of major characters. 
She's a little woman with big secrets. That's right. It's hard to be somebody so tiny. And for the background, a little bit of there, of the Cuban War that America has just fought and ousted the Spanish from Cuba in the name of Cuban independence. And one of the ways that the war hawks here are drumming it up, especially in the yellow press, men like William Randolph Hearst, Mm -hmm. is to liken them to our founding fathers in America trying to throw off the English. And it is quite a surprise for these men to get down there, even though they're, for the day, very multi-ethnic. There's Indian fighters as well as Native Americans in there with them. There's men from Harvard as well as Desperados. And there are some Mm Mexican-Americans. And so the Rough Riders people are familiar with, the Buffalo Soldiers are there. Mm -hmm. But they've built it up to George Washington and all these figures. And they get there and they see the Cuban people really look nothing like, you know, these towering Anglo-Saxon figures that we associate with the Founding Fathers. And so they sort of take on this, unfortunately, condescending little brother attitude towards them and then also gets stuck with the Philippines. And that's another thing. And it's this, you know, kind of the white man's burden idea. And I, I find that today still we have that because people will think, oh, well, you know, the, the, in the name of being nice to somebody, they'll just be so condescending. And I, like you now, always think of McKinley in this era, obviously somebody that I look up to, he's a hero of mine. And I don't think that he had those personal attitudes one-on-one with people, but it was easy somewhere so far away that he had to go and look at a globe to find where the Philippines was. So right. something like with Chiquita here, you could easily say, well, Cuban sounds much better than, you know, telling people that she's from Mexico. Mexico was not as uh, Ricardo Maltabon said, the great right. con in Star Trek and Mr. Rourke. He said, I've been asked to play everything in my life. The Latin lover, never once Mexican. So there's just something about it. He said that, you know, the word Mexican is just like, it. it's not as romantic sounding and so that didn't have that sense of adventure that's right you know? yeah yeah and she becomes the perfect emblem of the relationship with cuba and in the press also described cuba often in female terms you know that the united states with its rough riders and its army was going to come and uh rescue cuba from the evil evil spanish men and so Chiquita is kind of perfect for this, and she becomes the fair's mascot, which is, I think, very telling as well. One another thing was that today that we hear about often is people being uncomfortable being used as mascots, and she is mm-hmm. certainly taken that way. And there are all those stories again in the yellow yep. press, you know, about things like uh, women being stripped naked at Cuban women and just all to whip Mm -hmm. us into this frenzy. And then the Spanish are really no help either because they don't want anyone to take away their pearl of their empire from them. McKinley is actually trying to avoid war and they're all demanding that he go to war. It's really a vibrant period. (laughs) And to come to something like the exposition, you could see where people would want to go and sort of enjoy themselves and get away from all that. I have this idealized vision of the symbol there of the pan, as the Pan-American Exposition was called. These two women goddesses like Britannia, I guess they're Columbia, and you know, reaching across mm-hmm. from North and South America, across the then intact Isthmus of Panama. This is before <laughs> the Panama Canal. So 
Latin America here, it's really covered differently, even though it's in this condescending, idealized way, than, say, the more famous Chicago's World's Fair of 1893, where they really didn't talk about Latin America. So talk about this. What what was their effort in kind of trying to include South America with North America? And the Europeans are condescending to that as well. So it's really not maybe any of the things people would think when they pick up the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City. Yeah, I mean, I think this was an unusual exposition and its focus on Latin America. It really made this fair unique. And countries like Brazil and Argentina and Ecuador had been included in World's Fairs previously, and some of these countries had even hosted them. But in many other Western World Fairs, they'd been placed on the periphery of the fair, sometimes side-by-side with colonial exhibits. Um, And they were often chosen to represent the primitive, kind of the backward position on the ladder of civilization. This is the case in Chicago, for instance. In Buffalo, that happened as well, but Latin American republics were also given an opportunity to represent themselves in their exhibits. They were given a platform on which to talk to exposition audiences. And during dedication ceremonies, especially Latin American visitors, took advantage of this opportunity and this stage, in a sense, to not only thank their American hosts, but to offer opinions about American foreign policy. And this is particularly impressive in the case of Cuba, where Americans sat and listened to complaints and critiques of American intervention. So it was really, I think, an unusual moment. Yes, there was condescension and belittlement, but there was also an opportunity for Latin American countries to represent themselves. Speaking of President McKinley, he said when he visited the PAN, quote, expositions are the timekeepers of progress. They record the world's advancement. They stimulate the energy, enterprise, and intellect of the people and quicken human genius. They go into the home. They broaden and brighten the daily life of the people. They open mighty storehouses of information to the student, unquote. Now, I sound nothing like McKinley. They liken it to a <laughs> bell being rung, and I don't even know how I would attempt to sound like him, but there is some audio of him, but not the greatest quality coming from back then. But That's right. the thought that comes to me reading all that, all this positive, forward-looking thought is Mm -hmm. there are amazing inventions now. You talked in the beginning there about them doing the illumination. That was something so magic. Talk about some of these inventions and put us in the shoes of these people that are walking the pan. Talk about some of those advancements that they saw on the horizon in 1901. I really would point to electricity as kind of the big power, literally, and the idea that you can command the natural wonder of Niagara Falls in order to produce it. I mean, Buffalo itself was extraordinarily confident that this would be a hugely successful exposition because it had Niagara Falls nearby and because it could show off electricity and it had this gigantic rheostat that allowed the dimming of the lights and the creation of dawn from dusk and so forth. It was really electricity, I'd say, that everybody wanted to focus on. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the way that electricity dazzled people and awed people, but the way that electricity in the course of the fair came to represent not only something wonderful and amazing, but also something that 
could produce fatality. And we see that certainly with the electrocution of the presidential assassin, Leon Jogosh, but we also see it with the attempted electrocution of an elephant. So it was sort of a celebration of modern technology, but also an acknowledgement that this thing didn't come without cost. You mentioned the elephant there, Jumbo 2. Having taught this period, (laughs) you expected the degrading depictions and treatment of, say, the Africans. I mean, these are African-Americans being sent out there to dance and dress in a pavilion for the uh, quote-unquote good old days, as, as you write in the book, the description of it, not your words, but about the plantation and about pygmies from Africa and all there's Filipinos there. And some of them are also plotting still for their freedom from the U.S. and for their eventual independence. But in the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City, you also depict the casually brutal treatment of animals. And this is not just the circus animals like Jumbo 2, but there's even this spectacle of that people eating animals and them serving a dog. Uh Always easy to condescend to the past, but also people that are right here in our own world or our own time. China has that big dog meat festival and people are just repelled. And yet we look back to 1901 when you would think people with power parasols, everything looks so civilized. But this is a dark undercurrent here of the Pan American Exposition. Talk a little bit about what it's like to be an animal there in some of these places. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's obviously hard for me to put myself in the mind of poor Jumbo II. But I would say that two of the climactic moments of the fair, and they both happen towards the end of the exposition season, are the attempted electrocution of an elephant, as I've mentioned, and a dog feast that involved the killing and eating of local dogs by members of the Indian Congress, which was one of the major shows on the exposition midway. And I think both of these events reveal the very, very conflicted attitudes of the general public towards the use of animals for spectacle and for amusement, in a sense. Um, On the one hand, you had thousands of people who would be pouring into an arena at the fair to watch so-called savage Indians shoot arrows into dogs and then roast them. And this seemed both sort of horrifying, but also kind of confirmatory. It underscored spectators' own senses of sophistication you know, the strong belief that only primitive peoples would do such a thing. And you also saw thousands of people buy tickets to see an elephant brought to his knees through electricity. So you have these spectacles. At the same time, both of these events draw the concern and the protest and the anger of a brand new humane society. Buffalo had the second humane society in the country, and they took This group took animal abuse at the fair very, very seriously. They put straw hats, for instance, on horses to protect from the hot sun. And so what these things point to, I think, is a changing sensibility, the rise of animal welfare advocates who are really wanting to abolish the spectacle of animal abuse and those who still want to kind of revel in these rituals to convince themselves of their own superiority. Speaking of how strong the sun was, too, reminds me of another fad that came out of the Pan-American Exposition, and that's the tan, the pan-tan. <laughs> so that gives you an idea how heavy the sun was. These <laughs> ladies who previously, right, milky white, we talked about yeah, the electric right, tower, right. white 
skin being the ideal. It still is in many places. And in India, I watched a great documentary called Meet the Patels. And it's these young people mm. born in America that happen to be Indian. And they say, you know, my mother wouldn't want me sitting in the sun because it's still the ideal is to be a lighter skinned person than dark. It's something that's you know, fascinated humans, I guess, or something we've put way too much emphasis on over the years. But it's one thing that's here right. where people yeah. you know, put away the parasol, have a pan tan. Right. Our guest is Margaret Creighton, author of The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City, Spectacle and Assassination at the 1901 World's Fair. You can also visit her at mcreight88, that's M-C-R-E-I-G-H-T-88, or margaretcreighton.com. The Buffalo News writes, quote, Creighton tells the story of a city whose high hopes were shattered by the assassination of President William McKinley. She uses social class, race, gender, and animal welfare to explore issues at the fair that would become thornier later in the 20th century, and which are still being grappled with today. You write in The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City, quote, Some observers balked at the fair's design. Others were underwhelmed by the color scheme, and there were people on display in the midway who acted out. They protested their part in the show, sometimes publicly and sometimes quietly, in ways that only those with eyes or ears alert to such things would notice, unquote. With those alert eyes and ears that we try to cultivate today, talk about how, even as the Expo tried to include all Americans, they really fell short in these dignified depictions that the Buffalo News talked about and how they did irritate the Europeans who they were really mocking us here and so was Canada. Yeah, I think as much as the Pan American Exposition gave New World Republics a platform and big exhibit space, the exposition directors and the local press, certainly and the national press too, made it very clear that Latin American republics were lesser entities. They were America's younger, underdeveloped siblings. And they also indicated that what would encourage the maturity of these republics would be a very good and very strong commercial relationship with the United States and the opening of their countries to American investment under American financial control. So the press made it clear that these countries could be brought up to speed with American tutelage. They often used condescending language, not surprisingly, to refer to these countries. They would applaud them for their accomplishments, saying that they were becoming or on their way to becoming advanced and so forth. Chile, for instance, was celebrated for having sent some of its artists to Europe for training, and they were given great credit for their accomplishments. So it was a very mixed and, I think, complicated welcome for these New World visitors and exhibitors. And by the way, this is only a couple of years, a short time before the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. So that gives you an idea here of the changing American relationship where John Quincy Adams, as Secretary of State under James Monroe, had just said the Western Hemisphere is closed now to colonization by the other powers. Here's Roosevelt coming along and saying, oh, by the way, we're going to reserve the right to also back that up with a gun and a bunch of gunships. And if we're going to come in there for any of our <laughs> you know, commercial interests, especially, I think all of this goes very much hand in hand with the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City because 
it is a snapshot in time of what everybody was hoping for and what they were dealing with before it and so much of what came after. Also, some of their broken dreams here, things that didn't happen. Right. I mean, it was very much a McKinley fair, I think, in the sense that he was had been supportive all along of commercial development with Latin America, with investment and so forth. So it celebrated so much of what he believed and wanted for the United States. And I think that brings all the more poignancy to the fact that he was killed there. In fact, that's his final speech there that he gives, uh, I guess, either the day before or a couple days before he's shot. And it's right. very uplifting about trade and about, you know, let's have peace. And having seen the horrors of war and the Civil War, this is one reason he's very resistant to war with Spain. And they're really pushing him. And Congress is threatening, or some of the congressmen at one point, to declare war over his head, which seems insane to expect a commander-in-chief to prosecute a war that he was trying to kind of hold back. So... This was a time when he hoped he could really have prosperity for everybody. And you're right, it is. It's a tragic that he gets slain. It's always tragic when a president gets slain. But this was really at a cusp of something. And to have to have it happen so publicly when America is saying we don't have to worry about assassinations like they have in these dictatorships and in these monarchs. You know, people are shooting monarchs, sure, but who cares? You know, they shoot the king of Italy and America thinks, well, nobody would shoot a president. And even though they hear anarchists talking about this and saying somebody should shoot a president, one man says. And the man who shoots McKinley actually goes, gets the same exact Ivor Johnson gun that Galliano Bresci, I think, who shot the Italian king, and he goes and gets the same gun, and he carries a newspaper article in his pocket of that. So America is thinking they're very isolated here, that, you know, we have a democracy. If you want to get rid of a president, you can vote him out, even though poor James Garfield was just shot a short time before. (laughs) You know, it's it's really a rude awakening. Yeah, but it was unpatriotic and unmanly to surround yourself with with guards. You know, again, it was seen as un-American. And I mentioned Canada. I mentioned it being just across the river. McKinley goes halfway across that bridge. He doesn't uh, become the first president to leave the United States during his term. TR does when he goes to check out Panama. So he goes just sort of across the bridge there and stops short of going into Canada, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, when people talk about Mount McKinley, they often argue he never set foot in Alaska. Well, at the time, not only was there no plane and not only were train rides dangerous and deadly, but no president ever left the United States for a trip anywhere. And that that's what that would have required to go to Alaska. So it's not really, it wasn't really relevant to him. I like to think if he hadn't had that whole getting shot thing, he would have eventually gone to all, all the states. You know, most presidents like to travel. But that's right. here's Canada just across the river. And this is another snapshot in time that people may not realize The U.S. and Canada are not chummy-chummy the way we think of them today. Back then, the Great White North, still very much with Great Britain, still kind of warily eyeing the Americans as this up-and-coming country and this very powerful country. They don't care much for the Pan-American Exposition. We talked about the failure of the Pan-American Exposition to break even. So what role do you think, if any, the disinterest of such a close neighbor played in the Pan's failure? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think it's curious that the label Pan-American really didn't mean pan in the sense that it included all the Western Hemisphere. I mean, Canada did have an exhibition building and Canadians did come to the fair, but relatively little fuss was made about 
the relationship, and it certainly wasn't uh, very well celebrated. And I think one of the reasons Canada may have been lukewarm about the exposition was that the site of the fair was originally much, much closer to Niagara Falls, which, of course, would have benefited Canada. And then it was later redesigned and relocated to Buffalo. But if you ask whether the Canadian disinterest, in a sense, was the reason that the Pan American Exposition failed to break even, or failed economically, I think we have to attribute the slow attendance rate to a lot of different things. Certainly, Canada might have advertised more enthusiastically, but so could lots of other cities in the U.S. Fair officials also blamed cold weather in spring and early summer. They also blamed railroad companies for not setting rates low enough. And they blamed their own overconfidence, you know, saying that this is going to be an even bigger fair than Chicago's in 1893. And of course, they blamed Leon Shellgrush for single-handedly destroying enthusiasm and dampening attendance at a critical moment. If people do go up to Buffalo, one of the things they might want to take in is the Theodore Roosevelt inaugural historic site. This is where Theodore Roosevelt goes and takes the oath of office rather than taking it in the same house of John Milburn, the president of the exposition, where President McKinley is laying dead. He doesn't think that that's respectful. So he goes to the Wilcox house. The significant thing about the Wilcox house for this line of conversation is it was originally built as a fort. And that was aimed at the enemy of Canada. That's the people they feared coming. And that's <laughs> one of the reasons that house still stands, where the Milburn house that President McKinley perished in is long gone. It's unfortunately a parking lot now, which always depresses me because mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to be able to go there and, you know, <laughs> sit in the room where his life was slipping away and they try to draw the curtains. Yeah. And he says, mm-hmm. leave them up. I want to look at the trees. They're so beautiful, this kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah. But to protect our history, that's one of those places you just wish you could go. And that's the entire base. Pan American Exposition. Tell people what's left of it. Well, there is very little of the fair site that's currently marked. You know, as you mentioned, there's the house where Teddy Roosevelt took the oath of office. There is the New York State Exhibit Building, which is now the Buffalo History Museum. But pretty much it's gone. It's been paved over, it's been seeded, and it's become a lovely and very elegant suburb. I mean, there are a few rusty signs on streets indicating parts of the fairgrounds. There's some metal markers, and there's a tiny little boulder indicating where McKinley was shot. And many of these are left over from the centennial in 2001, where there was a big to-do stage to, to honor the exposition. But since that time, things, as I said, have pretty much rusted over. So the fair doesn't really exist in a material sense. There are archives, as I have explained, you know, and there's terrific written evidence. Buffalo had at the time almost nine daily papers, and, you know, they all covered the the exposition enthusiastically. Their diaries, their photographs, these sorts of things have been well preserved. But the space itself is pretty much vanished. You think of Dealey Plaza in Dallas or Ford's Theater, Mm -hmm. where the assassins murdered Lincoln and Kennedy. They're there. They're preserved. 
it wasn't even possible to preserve the Temple of Music where Cholgosh has his moment of destiny with President McKinley because it's a temporary building. And now there's that little house there. It just seems so surreal to be so forgotten. But another thing that they did was there were these uh, fortune seekers, you know, or souvenir hunters, I guess they called them. Mm-hmm. McKinley wasn't on the stage. He was down in front of the stage, but people assumed he was on the stage. So they'd go there with their knife and they'd just hack off a piece of wood. And <laughs> I often wonder what where that wood ended up, right? I mean, it sat in your attic maybe and you you know, lived your life and passed away and then your kids found it or your grandkids and said, what's this piece of wood here? <laughs> or poor John Milburn, right? They're ripping out his flowers yeah, right, and trampling right. his lawn and the president's in there trying to convalesce and we're hoping it'll get better. Stop ripping bricks out of my house. That's you know? right. Take leaves from my tree and everything. <laughs> oh my God. No wonder it fell down. Yes. Can we please come inside? Yeah. No, it was pretty brutal for him, certainly. And Possibly, or probably one of the reasons he left yeah. left town from New York. Yeah, well, it's not a nice thing to have your house remembered for. Right, exactly. Yeah, the only time I actually came close to unearthing something was last um, September when I visited the site with uh, a New York Times reporter, and we toured around, saw the old, you know, the little boulder, the shooting site, and saw the rusty signs and so forth. But we came across a construction crew at the very spot where McKinley had been shot. And we heard how they regularly found bits of plaster and so forth. And they've offered me a souvenir. I haven't taken them up on it yet, but I'm looking forward to making that a little keepsake of the fair. Wow. Here I'm sitting here saying, and you didn't call me? I mean, you didn't know me, but <laughs> <laughs> anybody ever calls you again, you know, remember Ghostbusters? Somebody tells you they have a piece of the <laughs> right. Temple of Music, Ray, you say yes. So, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, it is something. Pe- folks can go look. Uh, we'll link to it at historyauthor.com, and we'll link to the article that you are in. You're sitting there by the boulder that marks that spot. It just seems like there was such a beautiful <laughs> building. It just seems sad that it was like the fair, you know, electrifying fall of the Rainbow City. The fall is the key word there. It didn't have something like the 1889 Paris World's Fair that featured a certain skyscraping spire. The name escapes me. Oh, the Eiffel Tower, right? Or the... Uh, when, oh, yeah. When that? I spoke to Betsy Harvey Kraft about her book, The Fantastic Ferris Wheel, that Ferris wheel is long gone. It's sold for scrap. And yet the Eiffel Tower stands. Of course, the Temple of Music doesn't stand. It seems amazing that we lost these things to a complete raising. I'm really excited, as I said, to pick up this book, look at the cover, look at some of those great old pictures. that They just look like they're taken with one of those Instagram filters, you know, that the kids love to use today on Instagram. You know, they every, nothing is just taken as a picture anymore. It's got to be sort of you have dog ears on or whatever it is. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what some of those other, you talked about tangible, or, I wonder what some of those other tangible artifacts were that are in the museum. Give a shout out to some of these things that are in the Buffalo Historical Societies and things like the website you can go do the pan and, and places like that. What can people see? What What is left here after the fall? Well, you mentioned a wonderful website developed by Susan Eck, which is gives the, the visitor a, an opportunity to tour the fairgrounds and to take in press accounts of the days of the fair and really gives you an opportunity to visualize and experience the adventure of the exposition. One of the things that you can do, go to the Buffalo History Museum at at their Forest Avenue Resource Center. You can go and it's open, I think, once a week and tour some of the exhibits that were put up 
for the centennial in 2001. That's a wonderful show. You can also go visit some of the collections at the History Museum and see, oh, Shulgush's revolver and the handkerchiefs that he used to cover the revolver. You can see a ribbon that describes and celebrates uh, McKinley's recovery. Oh, gee, that didn't uh, sell too well for too long, I'm sure. You can also see the scrapbooks of Mabel Barnes, one of the most enthusiastic patrons of the fair at the History Museum. And as I said, at the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library, you can go and see the exposition scrapbooks. They're digitized now, so you don't need to go there, but it's always nice to see things firsthand. There was another fellow there. We talked about some of the characters in the book and also about souvenir hunters. Those two things come together for Big Jim Parker, as do some of the racial aspects of the day, some of the racial prejudice. He's the man behind the man that shoots the president, and he knocks him to the ground. He saves McKinley from taking a third bullet after he takes two. One reflects off of his sternum, his chest plate, and the other, unfortunately, goes into his stomach, and that's the fatal one. But Jim Parker, for a time, is thought to have saved the president's life. And by the same token, the flip side of that is you think everyone is praising a hero. When the word first comes out that he's even involved, they talk about African-Americans holding their breath, thinking, oh, please don't let him have been involved. Big Jim Parker takes sort of this classic path from fame. He has this short fame. People are buying buttons off his shirt. They're wanting to just shake his hand. But unfortunately, it turns out he didn't save the president. Tell us a little bit about what made you include him in your story and what his future does hold for him after McKinley passes away. Well, I think the story of Jim Parker is a story that I'd say distresses readers more than any other. It's just one of these tales that start out as a, an account of heroism and celebration by the African-American community. And then quickly, Jim Parker's actions in the Temple of Music are erased, first by the press and by, say, Secret Service agents and police who don't want to give him the credit of pulling the assailant down. But then he's erased from the trial of Shulgosh. He's not asked to testify. And he spent the rest of his life talking to church groups, talking to people at various public meetings, standing on street corners, trying to convince people that he had actually been there, had done something heroic, and that he needs to be believed. And he wrote to Ida McKinley after Obviously, her husband had died and asked for some help, and she believed him enough to be able to send some assistance of some sort to him. But eventually, he dies in Philadelphia, and he seems to have been nearly friendless or doesn't have anybody to have taken him in or to even pick up his body, and so he is delivered to a Philadelphia hospital for an autopsy that is conducted by medical students. So it's a sad and even tragic ending and a very sort of distressing story. Not surprising at all, given the era, but again, doesn't mean it's not any less disturbing. 
It is tragic, and it reminds me of Oliver Sippel, who was the man who saved President Ford from one of the two assassination attempts on him, knocked his hand up, Mm. or rather her, that was a female assassin, Mm. two women try to shoot Ford. Oliver Sippel knocks the hand up of Sarah J. Moore, and he's a hero, and he also happens to be gay at this time in the mid-70s. I think it's Harvey Milk that lets people know that he's gay, that outs him, because, you know, this is a heroic thing he did, and he didn't want his parents to know and Mm -hmm. didn't want anyone to know. He also dies very tragically with this picture, a thank-you signed picture from President Ford on his wall. It was a very downward spiral there. It makes you think, we all say we're going to go back and save Lincoln, right? Mm. Well, you all say that. I say I'm going to go back and save McKinley. But (laughs) it's, uh, it's not always an easy road, right, to have that fame. That's a tough thing. And it's too bad when you look at this story in the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City. Also, Parker's fall. They're literally singing songs about him. There's a song, you know, using the term of the time, the Negro is in it. And this is also Mm -hmm. trying to get into sort of those front row, first class American expositions at the expo saying, you know, all these things have happened. We've been there. We were at Bunker Hill, all these places in here when this, you know, thug foreigner tries to strike down our president, even though, you know, don't tell the lyricist that Joel Gosh was born in the middle of Michigan. But, you know, they're really trying to use Mm -hmm. Big Jim Parker as an example for them. And it's it's sad. And I was glad that you had him in your book. It's it's good that we remember him because he did certainly try to do the right thing. He could have been killed himself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In closing, you write that the dark descended on the Rainbow City and stayed after McKinley's assassination. But we've debunked this historical myth that it sort of tore the heart there out of Buffalo. It did lose money, the Pan American Exposition, but it's still a story that lives on. I hope even more lives on here. And that made me wonder, when somebody picks up the book, what do you hope they take away from it as the true legacy of the Pan and sort of spread the word, maybe look a little bit differently at that boulder there as they zip by or look at that map that they have on the website that overlays the past over what's the present now? Well, there's sort of two questions there, which are both good ones. One is, did the assassination cause the fair to, uh, to fail? And I, as I point out, the exposition directors were already concerned about the low rates or low, relatively low rates of attendance as early as mid-July, and McKinley, of course, didn't show up until early September. But what the assassination meant then was that the exposition couldn't recover from what was already a faltering revenue. So we shouldn't pin everything on the president's death, although it certainly had a big impact on the attendance. Did the assassination, uh, as you put it, tear the soul out of Buffalo? Well, Buffalo, uh, I'm always amazed every time I visit the city and go back, uh, it's an incredibly resilient place. If there was any embarrassment over the shooting of the president, it was when McKinley seemed to recover. Buffalonians at that point were thrilled that their city surgeons had performed what was essentially a miracle. And then, of course, he suddenly died. And This was a fairly big embarrassment. You know, they were chagrined, but they were still ultimately happy about what they thought they'd accomplished with technology and with the Pan-American theme. And they did try to save some of it. They tried to save, especially the electric tower, which was made and constructed of, of steel as opposed to the 
plastery stuff that coated all the other buildings, but there just wasn't enough money. And as for the legacy of the Pan American Exposition, I would probably never claim that the exposition was or marked a watershed, that it generated momentous change or marked momentous change. But it does give us a great glimpse into the century to come, which was a century of great social struggle. This fair celebrated an optimism or demonstrated an optimism about the triumph of white civilization. They celebrated the harnessing of a natural wonder. At the same time, though, we see through these characters at the fair kind of uh, levels of resistance and protest. All these people who had been relegated to various inferior places and who had been left behind in this grand triumphal story. And they were unwilling to be bound down or subjugated. So we see the beginnings of the fair of, of movements for social justice. We see people demanding respect for those who are living in poverty, for people of color. We see individuals de- demanding respect and new freedoms for women. And we see even people advocating for animals. So I think the fair serves as a a very intriguing prelude to the 20th century, and also resonates today. Well, Margaret Creighton, author of The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City, I hope it comes across to people just how exciting we find this lost city and all the promise that it holds, even today for us looking forward to to try to see things that we can change and work to change them, but also to have that sense of wonder that I think in a world where Epcot Center is always sitting right there in Florida, maybe we forget and where right. you know we're spoiled by our electricity and our iPhones and all these other things. This was really a time that reminds us to recapture that can-do spirit, maybe. I hope people will want to learn more about the pan in your book. Thank you so much for joining me, and I wish you all the luck that eluded John Milburn and the others at the fair when you go out with this book. I hope it's in a dozen printings. Oh, thanks so much. Again, the book is The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City, Spectacle and Assassination at the 1901 World's Fair. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase made through our site at no additional cost to you. Once again, thank you so much to Margaret Creighton for joining us and whisking us back to Buffalo in 1901. You can visit her on Twitter at mcrate88 or at margaretcreighton.com. As you know, if you've been listening for a while, I'm a big fan of the Gilded Age and getting the chance to visit the Pan American Exposition, even if it was just in a book, was a real treat for me. I would also encourage you to visit the website about the pan by Susan J. Eck called Doing the Pan. I've enjoyed watching her site grow and expand over the years, and it's the next best thing after reading the electrifying fall of the Rainbow City to being right where the action was at Niagara Falls in 1901. The web address is panam1901.org. Well, that's it for this electrifying installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, 
please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week.